1: So do we say the president of
2: Taiwan?
3: No, it's the president on Taiwan, Shane. I think it depends on whether or not rational security recognizes the one China policy. I think
2: it's the president around Around
1: Taiwan. You know what? We should
3: do a children's book where we do prepositions. Where's the president? But with the president of Taiwan. If you can
1: do it to Taiwan, it's a preposition. It could be on Taiwan, around (laughs) Taiwan, Taiwan, under Taiwan. How about
2: every time in this podcast that we refer to the president... The In or about Taiwan? Taiwan, we use a different preposition. Okay. Yeah,
1: I like that. That'll be like a challenge. It'll be like a drinking game.
2: Yeah.
1: Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the human objectification edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Wall Street Journal. You're going to have to wait until the end of the podcast to find out our human objectification of the week. We're I'll objectify you, Shane. Would objective you? Objective I would love humans. to be objectified. I am objectively human, but... I don't, I
3: don't. Are
0: you? You are, are you know, the Wall Street Journal.
1: I am the Wall Street Journal. You are Journal. the
2: embodiment of <laughs> the objectification. I am the reporter of. on the Wall Street Journal. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's me. Happy That's actually
2: so. a, a classic old usage. Um, until relatively recently, people would refer to reporters' relationship with a newspaper as. Shane Harris is on the Wall Street Journal. Oh. Um, ben Wittes is on the Washington Post, and that's oh. a relatively re- that only relatively recently uh, dropped out of usage.
1: That's fascinating. Is this a, like an English thing, or like you know? I don't know, it's, well, on it's, the
0: staff of yeah, on yeah. the yeah. staff of. On the of it was like on saying
2: somebody Journal. was on the Foreign Service, or oh, uh, wow. you know, that on Her Majesty's Secret I love Service, that. I on use on, that. on the Post staff, on the Post.
1: I'm in the Wall Street Journal today.
0: He is Shane Harris bylines
1: first one. They're going to wrap it in fish later.
3: I think we should say best wishes to Shane and congratulations to the Wall Street Journal to Rupert Murdoch. yeah Like the way you like but- you say best wishes to the bride and you congratulate the groom because Indeed. they're really the lucky ones here. We're very happy together. That, just to further objectify
0: you. Sure. You're the bride in this and my scenario. <laughs> 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 oh yeah, I hate if I get to pick. <laughs>
1: uh, you know my good friends Tamara Kaufman, Wittes, Ben Wittis and Susan Hennessy. Hi guys. Hi, Hi Shane. Uh uh, this week on the podcast, the president-elect of the United States takes a call from the leader of Taiwan. That's a way around it. Bipartisan pressure is mounting in Congress to investigate the Russian hacks of the presidential election. That would be our presidential election, not Taiwan's. And if you're a wonk in Washington, you may be out in the cold. We're going to talk about why, plus a special human objects lesson. Um, let's start with this phone call. I'm... i, I, I and tempted it first a bizarre phone call, but now it seems perhaps like a premeditated... Crazy, like, I don't think it's mutually exclusive. It can both yeah, be bizarre exactly. and premeditated. Gotta remember our frames here. Uh, but for those who didn't catch it, uh, uh, President Donald Trump had a phone call with the uh, president of Taiwan. No, no, the president in The Taiwan. president in Taiwan, who was, I think she was in Taiwan when the call was made. <laughs> um, just a, hey, how you doing? Congratulations. And this was... A problem slash significant why tomorrow
0: well it's it 's impressive when a president elect before even taking office gets a full page front page editorial castigating him in the Chinese national press, um, but in this case, it is because of uh, the people 's republic of china 's sensitivity over Taiwan and the careful orchestration of American relationships with Taiwan and China. Um, when we recognized the PRC back in 1979, and, um, and since then, uh, the U.S. president has never spoken directly to the Taiwanese president. There, how's that to avoid a preposition? Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was a first. It was a break in protocol. Um, and it upset the Chinese. Now, initially, it seemed as though this was some kind of accident that the Taiwanese president called and, that foolish, ignorant Donald Trump who hadn't taken his intelligence briefings or his uh, briefing books from the State Department was dumb enough to pick up the phone and create a diplomatic incident. Um, it comes to light through some great reporting over the last few days that, in fact, this was the result of months of careful orchestration. Uh, by the Taiwanese government with the help of former Senator Bob Dole, who's a registered agent on behalf of the Taiwanese government in the U.S. At 93 years old. Which is impressive. Mm -hmm. And impressively at 93, he built up a relationship with Trump campaign staff, brought a bunch of Trump-affiliated people to Taiwan on a visit, and brokered this phone call so that it was not at all an accident. It was very deliberate. Now, you know, one, one way to think about this is, wow, they really were planning and, you know, Trump wanted to send an early signal to China that, uh, he's gonna be tough with them and this was like a brushback pitch. It's, it's great diplomatic strategy. Um, the other way to think about it is that it's cronyism. It's exactly the kind of swamp draining that, uh, That Donald Trump promised and isn't doing. You have a retired senator, a longtime lobbyist who's just sucking up the money from the Taiwanese government and using his networks to generate something that is not necessarily in the American national interest. And the president-elect, because he doesn't care very much about that kind of wheeling and dealing in Washington, acceded to it. Um, so that's another interpretation. And, you know, I throw it out to you guys. Was it crazy like a fox or was it just politics as usual? Well, so wait a minute.
2: I I mean, I am I still think there's still a third possibility, which is that this was highly deliberate on the part of uh, the Taiwanese, Bob Dole, and certain members of uh, the Trump campaign staff and transition staff, but was not at all deliberate or deliberative on the part of Donald Trump. I agree. Who, uh.
0: So you mean the campaign staff duped him and kind of went to him and said, Hey, the president of Taiwan's on the phone. He was like, Hey, great. Yeah. Well, Maybe.
2: or, or something a little bit less absurd than that, but he did not appreciate the full implications, perhaps, of taking a call from the uh, the president in or about Taiwan, um, and um, was uh, that it that it still partakes of that sort of uh, blunderbuss, do whatever, uh, what whatever presents itself, uh, and I did not see in those stories uh, any implication that uh, the president elect himself. Uh, had any sense of the gravity of what he was doing now all that said i got to say i love the idea of taking a call from the president under taiwan and uh rocking the chinese off their uh, off their assumptions that they can they they can demand that we uh um uh respect their irrational red lines about uh about their definition of of their nationhood, which, by the way, does not comport with the reality of the political life of East Asia. Taiwan is, in fact, an independent functioning country. Uh, and I don't have any problem at all with a strategic decision to not uh, play nice with Chinese sensibilities about that and push that line aggressively. I have a huge problem with doing it for reasons of either cronyism or doing it for reasons of uh, uh, stumbling into it because the phone rings because your staff and some crony's staff and the government of Taiwan have been working together. And so it seems to me that it matters a lot what Trump knew and understood that he was doing and how— much he did that as a calculated I wanna I wanna you know well, to coin a term consistent. press a reset button in a negative way with, with with these guys and make them understand that they can't count on me to to do whatever they want.
0: Okay and and let's be fair, it is consistent with his stated views on the US relationship with China. So to the extent that his staff were working with Bob Dole on this. They weren't going against what he said he wanted. And, you know, I guess what I would say is it would be not only reasonable, but probably smart for an incoming president to find some way to do a brushback pitch on the Chinese economically, militarily, politically. There's a whole range of options so this is the one that happened. I, you know, it might not be the one that I would necessarily put at the top of the list, but it's not bad.
3: No, so my read is, um, is, is more like Ben's, right? So I, am um, my, uh, my sense is that, and, and speculation largely is that, yes, there was some sort of concerted effort. It was pitched to Donald Trump without him fully appreciating the gravity. Um, in addition, because he tweeted out this, um, the president of Taiwan called me all capital letters, um, which, you know, to a, a rational observer would, um, appeared to indicate that called me was the operative fact that she had called him and that it was not, in fact, him reaching out. Um, and that only He did later, not ask for that date. Right, exactly. Um, and that only later uh, it sort of came out that this had, in fact, been premeditated. Um, so uh, one, um, this is not how policies are shifted, even if it is intentional. And um, the idea of doing it in the president-elect period without coordination with the White House, um, this is a significant shift in 40 years of U.S. policy. Uh, so that, that I think is a really important point
0: beyond the wisdom of the move itself. We have one president at a time and he shouldn't be shifting foreign policy during the transition
3: right. And I think that this is, but this is actually an area in which it's, um, it's going to be really interesting to see how um, experts and foreign policy experts communicate to the American people. um, Why uh, a lot of foreign policy and diplomacy is kind of weird. Um, Yeah. Why, uh, to the average sort of, you know, Joe Schmo observer, wherever, uh, I I think that they do look at this and they say, what? We're using the word on and we're accommodating the Chinese and and everybody knows that there's this country, but we're not printing. That's ridiculous. That's typical typical Washington B.S. without understanding, well, sure, a preposition is a way that we've avoided a war. Now, that doesn't mean shifting now leads us inevitably to war, but actually these accommodations that are sort of face saving um, and can seem a little bit silly, frivolous, um, that actually those can be really, really significant. And so I, I do think that this is going to be a moment in which experts are going to have to sort of step up and say, um, so Yes, uh, there might be some positive benefits to having a president who really um, uh, challenges conventional thinking, right? Um, we're not going to have a president that just goes along with the one China policy because that's what we've always done. Um, there's nothing wrong with that, uh, uh, what is potentially wrong with that is if we have a president that just thoughtlessly bulldozes all these things because he has no idea the significance. I was struck to see Kellyanne Conway on, uh, you know, Anderson Cooper saying, you know, sort of as people were being outraged. Oh, you know, uh, come on, Anderson. This is how wars start. That's ridiculous. Yeah. The recognition <laughs> yeah. of sovereign territories is how wars start, actually, Kellyanne, right? And so, like, like getting people to understand, having that that conversation, Um, this is test one. I don't know that anybody passed it.
1: Well, it seems to me also there's a question, and maybe we get a view on this too, from the call that he had with the prime minister of Pakistan, that some world leaders sense or are being told by Trump's staff that this is an opportunity for quite unconventional communication and are taking advantage of that. Um, <clears throat> of course, he had this conversation with the prime minister of Pakistan, the Pakistanis then put out this kind of amazing readout of the transcript that appeared to be their best attempt at like a transcript of what Trump said, because it's clearly in Trump's voice saying things like, I know many Pakistanis, they're great people. You have a wonderful country. If you need anything, it sounds but al- like Trump, but,
2: but also written, it, it reads like it's written by somebody, uh, Imitate, like transcribing Trump who himself doesn't have perfect English. Exactly, yes. It, that's, mean, that's it's, precisely a, it's a wonderful right. document. It's
1: really it's really terrific. But it also I mean, it, obviously, you know, you, you know, there were plenty of former press secretaries who came out and said I would be on the phone with my counterpart if they ever did this. You can't put out a, a readout like this and I'm not sure that the Trump transition transition really is putting out many detailed readouts but of their own. But it again revealed, you know, a seemingly Donald Trump being completely unaware of the relationship that a, we have with India and that Pakistan has with India and kind of just saying things to sound gracious, but that could actually be read as a major shift in our policy towards this very significant country. But also the Pakistanis realizing now is a great moment to get in there and take advantage of this person there, maybe because they've signaled to us that they want to change, maybe just because he's ignorant on some of this stuff.
0: Well, and I also think though that that, That thing that foreign governments use a period of transition or a new president, especially presidents who don't come from, you know, who come from being governor or something like that and don't have a lot of foreign policy experience, foreign governments always use that to sort of introduce issues, especially allies do it to introduce issues in a way that's most advantageous to them, to sort of make a blank slate and present their case in their way like on a, the assumption that nobody's going to call them out on it. That The, the new diplomatic president...
1: pulling a fast one.
0: Right. Yeah. And it's also very common that a new principal, whether it's a president or secretary of state or whatever, is going to believe what they get directly from their interlocutor over what they get from their advisors. And that's, that's true throughout American history. If you look at the history of U.S. foreign policy, you'll find numerous instances of, you know, the Secretary of State telling the president, well, come on, the British really want this, and the president saying, but the Prime Minister told me that, you know, and so that to me is not in and of itself unusual, unprecedented, dangerous, worrisome. I think what I worry about more is, is what Susan was saying is this sort of Forrest Gump effect, (laughs) you know, that, that he kind of blunders into something that changes policy without anyone necessarily intending it.
3: One thing that's interesting is um, is actually reports uh, out of the UK that Theresa May is now saying that Boris Johnson, as the foreign secretary, does not speak for the UK government. Um, uh, You know, it's sort of that's obviously a a pretty remarkable thing. Um, It does lead you to wonder if we aren't going to get to a place in which the uh, um, representatives of the American government are going to have to start explaining that the president of the United States does not speak for the American people.
1: (laughs) That'll be an interesting one. Uh, All right, let's move on to our next topic. Interesting goings on in Congress right now. There's actually bipartisan support that is building, slowly I think, but significantly in the past few days, um, to formally investigate the uh, the hacks on the DNC, the Clinton campaign, and other political organizations, which of course we've talked about a lot, uh, the U.S. intelligence community has attributed to Russians uh, and directed by senior most uh, elements of the Russian government. So uh, two Democratic congressmen <clears throat> have introduced a bill – to create an independent 12-member bipartisan commission, sort of a la the 9-11 commission to look into this, which would have subpoena power, which would have investigatory power. Lindsey Graham, Republican senator, has come out and said he is going to use some of the subcommittees that he chairs as a, a vehicle for investigating uh, the hacks. Bob Corker, who has been on the short list for uh, Secretary of State said it's that
3: n- – Not a short list, but the list. Not a, a list. list. It's uh, the growing
1: it's short – the, the expanding <laughs> slash shrinking list uh, has said that his committee foreign affairs would like to look into this as well. So there's there, there are elements that are clearly you know, in favor in both parties right now of uh, doing something formal on the record. Oh, and, and uh, there are also a number of Democratic lawmakers this week that sent a letter to President Obama asking him to provide a full briefing to all members of Congress, not just those on the intelligence community about this. Uh, and then there was a classified letter that went over from about seven senators last week saying uh, we still have lots of questions about these hacks and we're going to send you more details under classified cover. Um Obviously, this is sort of if you want more public information about the hacks is an encouraging sign. Uh, I think it butts up against quite a headwind, though, in the fact that Donald Trump, as recently as this week in his interview with Time magazine, which named him person of the year, repeated again his belief that there is no evidence that the Russians were behind this. And furthermore, accused the intelligence community of engaging in a political act by trying to put this out there. Um, a lot to unpack in this, but I'm curious what you guys, A, make of Trump's continuing insistence on this and B, you know, if there's any hope for any real investigation of this coming out of Congress. Well,
2: so can can I just say on that latter point, I mean, I I, I think, you know, the, the psychology of Trump's refusing to uh, acknowledge uh, the, the reality that his intelligence community is – uh, trying to convince him of is, uh, probably the province of clinical people that, um, not me. But I, I do think that the, um, it's worth, uh, paying a little attention to the question of what the structure for this investigation should be. Because with, with all due respect to the Democrats who, uh, put forward this commission idea, it's actually a dumb idea. Uh, because if, imagine if Congress passed such a piece of legislation, uh, then the result would be that Donald Trump, uh, who doesn't believe in this and who is the principal beneficiary of this Russian hacking would get to name the main members of this commission because that's, uh, you know, and, and.
0: Well, but if it's left to the IC, he gets to direct what the IC tells Congress.
2: Right. But this is why the real significance is that Lindsey Graham and Bob Corker and, uh, certain other senior Republicans, including John McCain, apparently are taking this seriously enough to want to investigate it. And between the, t- the, the three of them, they have two powerful committees at their disposal to do it. And it seems to me that the the idea of a national commission is a kind of a like virtue signaling of how serious we are about it rather than a strategically valuable way to pursue this investigation. Uh, it puts a lot in the executive branch the right way to handle this is for those members of congress who uh republican and democrat who are taking this issue seriously who between them control some real committees uh to uh, interface with the intelligence community which is being marginalized on a critical issue of national intelligence and national security by the incoming president of the united states and that's why we have an independent branch of government in congress and Designing a system in which that president gets to name some or all of the members of the commission uh, doesn't seem to me like a very productive way to so investigate. he doesn't get to
1: name them. any of them just for clarification. But
2: I'm sorry? He wouldn't actually name any of them. I think formally he has to name uh, – at least under the 9-11 commission model, he would have to formally name all of them.
1: Right. But the bill says appointed by the speaker, the majority leader of the Senate, the minority leader of the House, and the minority leader of the Senate.
2: I see.
1: So okay. all congressionally chosen. All congressionally.
0: They thought about that. Well,
2: so the question the the question then becomes who, uh, who the, um, you get into some questions about what. As a constitutional matter, that commission really is at that point.
3: Right. But I think that, look, there's a, there is a lot to unpack and, um, and different things are serving different purposes. Um, so, uh, the introduction of, um, of certain pieces of legislation, um, as well as these letters, um, I think that's pretty clearly serving a signaling function. Um, the intention of which is not necessarily the establishment of a commission, but to mount pressure on President Obama to declassify particular pieces of information. Sort of understanding that there is, um, Apparently, some evidence that members of Congress uh, believe the American public should know, and that there's, uh, you know, a limited window in which President Obama could actually make that information public. Um, so I think that sort of uh, there is some moves that are that are occurring that um, aren't necessarily partisan, but are aimed at at the president, and those are primarily coming from the Democrats. Um, the second question of uh, of an actual commission, I, I agree, um, or, or sort of uh, of an actual actual investigation moving forward, um, I agree that it's really significant um, one that we're seeing um, sort of Republican interests, and two, that that be a Republican-led effort. Um, there are sort of, uh, uh, there are three different tracks of uh, sort of Russian interference in this election um, with different uh, uh, evidence and and features and, and potential responses. So the first is sort of their involvement in uh, information warfare. So WikiLeaks, WikiLeaks, um, uh, uh, whether or not they now we know uh, uh, that they did hack the DNC emails uh, responsible for John Podesta's emails being hacked, passing them through WikiLeaks. Um, uh, so that sort of hacking and then uh, information dumping. Um, the second is their involvement in pushing uh, fake news. Um, so uh, not just, um, uh, you know, th- uh, thwarting kind of the Facebook stories, um, you know, all of these Twitter trolls, but really trying to sort of capitalize on on just an absolute flood of, of false information um, uh, more and more, it's appearing that lots and lots of that information was um, uh, coming out of Russia. Um, and also that it was a re- of a relatively sophisticated character, um, which is uh, uh, surprising, um, right, that, that they would be uh, as sophisticated about sort of the, the temperature of of, uh, of the U.S. electorate. Um, and then the third is the question of actual hacking election machines um, and whether or not there was sort of um, we know that there were intrusions um, uh, into uh, uh, election infrastructure in Arizona and Indiana and other states, Um, uh, not evidence yet that there was actually any interference with with vote counts, but what that more sort of that critical infrastructure question to move us back to, I think, you know, what we were talking about back in July. Um, And so this is going to be an incredibly complex investigation. Um, I do think that uh, because Donald Trump has uh, demonstrated that he is hostile to the intelligence community, um, hostile to that evidence, um, Congress can, of course, uh, uh, demand uh, uh, the the intelligence community provide evidence to them. Um, so they potentially are going to have to sort of be be the grown-ups here. Um, this really is a place in which um, uh, country over party um, uh, this is an incredibly significant event. Um, it's, it has significance uh, moving forward. If we ignore it, uh, it could get worse. And so I'm I'm hopeful that senators like Graham, McCain, Corker, and others will uh Understand the significance and take on that responsibility. Right. Okay, and so, okay. the, so,
2: so, so this just let me let me just put the question to you very baldly: Whom do you trust more to conduct uh, a, an investigation, or name the staff to do it, or name the you know people who are going to do it? Lindsey Graham, John McCain, and Bob Corker, assuming Bob Corker doesn't become Secretary of State, or Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell who have a much larger set of agenda items of cooperation with an incoming Trump administration? Okay.
0: I think that's a fine question. And I think the implication of the way you asked it is clear um, in terms of what the options are for investigatory mechanisms. But if I can, let's just take a step back for a minute and think about who are the Republicans who are being outspoken on this? McCain and, and Graham, Graham, who was an opponent of Trump's consistently throughout McCain, who was a very reluctant supporter, um, and Corker. And all three of these guys, yes, have a substantive policy concern over Russia, that they know that they have a disagreement with the incoming president over Russia and its role in the world and what the American stance should be toward it. Um, And so investigating this for them serves two, two distinct purposes, distinct but related, On two different game boards. One is that investigating the Russian relationships in the U.S. election campaign that may have advantaged the president, the incoming president, gives them leverage over the president. Um, And the second is that investigating this gives them leverage over Russia and policy toward Russia because they get to embarrass the Russians. So it's I mean... Yes, they are sincerely concerned on a substantive level about the long term implications of and it's yeah, you can say it's national interest over party, but it also has a lot to do with these specific people and their interests relative to the president and a way of gaining leverage over him. So let's not ignore the politics of this.
3: Well, I have to say, I'm half joking on this, but uh, one of the most effective deterrent strategies uh, in terms of uh, disincentivizing this moving forward would be if Trump actually does pick someone like John Bolton. Because if the Russians went to all that trouble only to have John Bolton setting Russia policy, one, that would be hilarious. Two, I bet they'd never do it again. <laughs> okay, that might be the best argument for John Bolton. The, the as Secretary one silver lining. Right. Have, and he
1: I wouldn't even know been. he was that he wouldn't even know the problems he'd just solved. But <laughs> later he'd tweet and say, People tell me this was a brilliant idea.
0: Right, right. Uh
1: all right, let's move on to our third segment. Uh Dan Dresner has a I thought a very thoughtful, provocative column uh in the Washington Post, basically making the argument that if you are a wonk in Washington, you're kind of screwed. Uh, for the next four years uh, tomorrow, do you want to sort of set up what his argument is? And then, yeah,
0: uh... sure. So Dan Dresner, who by the way um, has a book coming out soon on think tanks and their role in in U.S. policy, um, wrote a provocative little piece at the end of last week, arguing that um, the incoming administration is a nightmare for policy wonks like say all of us sitting in this room and what we do and what we've done for do our I call entire I careers. A wonk? Um, I'm oh. proudly a wonk, oh. but. In I'd any event, his argument is, look, Trump is appointing to senior positions and Trump himself, you know, these are people with very, in many cases, little to no experience in government, in other cases, experience in government, but not with the issues that they're going to be responsible for or in the ways they're going to be responsible for them. And this poses a challenge because there are two possibilities, both of which he argues are bad for, for policy experts. Um, possibility one is that these people succeed and the, the Trump government actually functions okay without these senior people having much expertise or, or knowledge or background, in which case it throws into question the whole premise of our work, which is that expertise matters to effective government. The other possibility is that these people are a disaster and there's a lot of policy failure in the Trump administration and then we'll all be miserable because policy failure makes us sad. Um And of course, it's bad for the country, just as a side note. Um, (laughs) So and I think it's a very provocative argument. And I do think it raises an important question of how much policy expertise matters to the running of government at senior levels. But I also think it raises another question that Dan didn't note. uh, And a third hypothesis uh, to explain um, uh, if the Trump administration succeeds without expertise. And that's that political appointments might not matter that much. We like to think of our plum book, our 4,000 political appointees spread across the administration as really, really important. And of course, when there's a change in, in party uh, in the presidency, we do see high-level policy changes that signal changes in direction for the federal government and the federal government responds. But a lot of day-to-day policy sort of cooks along without that kind of high-level political direction. And so I think it's an interesting question whether the permanent bureaucracy actually has a lot more to do with the running of government than we all give it credit for.
3: So I'm... Uh... I'm inclined to uh like I'm hoping for the best um I would be surprised that this administration is a, is a wild success um and of course we might see successes and failures on different um in different areas right so the economy foreign policy you know the, there's lots of um uh, the idea that it that it's is going to be all failure or all success is, is probably not realistic um the thing about sort of uh, uh whether or not kind of the 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 bureaucracy will just work or um or sort of the experts won't matter um I think that's, that might be true, um, up and until a crisis moment. Um, so yes, for most things, um, I think it sort of, it occurs somewhat on autopilot. People, uh, people understand their roles. Um, uh, you know, there's a, um, just a bias against sort of chaos, right? So even when we see kind of the response to the, t- to the Taiwan call, right? Trying to sort of minimize and, and, you know, steady the ship. And that's sort of, that's lots and lots of players' gut reactions to sort of move Move to, a, to a place that explains and rationalizes and normalizes so we can keep moving forward. The, the place in which historically we see, uh, one, that the individual of the t- temperament of the president is incredibly important, and two, uh, sort of the power of political appointees and their ability to sort of um, uh, set agendas and, and uh, you know, have serious impacts tends to be in really significant crisis moments. Um, and so I think that the real test of this will be the first time the Trump administration Faces something like that, uh, I I uh, I do think expertise matters. Um, I think that if it works out okay, um, it will be largely a question of luck at that point. Um, this is not just sort of the fate of the United States. Uh, this is uh, the entire sort of global world order. These are the lives of many, many people at stake in, in lots of these situations. Um, that is not uh, the, the mere fact that, uh, that luck is going to play that significant of a role. Um, is itself stunning and terrifying. Um, but I guess we're going to find out. So I actually
2: think that the whole premise of this article is uh, something close to simple nonsense. Oh,
0: thank God.
2: Um And I just want to start with Mattis. I mean, so look, you can say a lot of things about Donald Trump's appointments, and some of them are really objectionable. Uh, but they are generally speaking, at least in the security areas, not people who are uh, devoid of experience or expertise. General Mattis was the head of CENTCOM. It, it's hard to imagine other than possibly being Deputy Secretary of Defense, a position that, uh, better, uh, qualifies one to run the Defense Department. Um, Jeff Sessions, look, I wouldn't have nominated him. I wouldn't vote for him's confirmation if I were a senator. Uh, but it's very hard to argue that this man isn't, in a conventional sense, it, the, uh, experienced uh, and have lacks the expertise to be attorney general. He was a U.S. attorney. Uh, that's normally considered the classic qualification uh, to run the Justice Department. He has been um, – uh, he was a state attorney general in his state. He was also a longtime member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. So, I mean, I, you know, insofar as any senator is qualified to be attorney general, Jeff Sessions is qualified to be attorney general. And then there's Mike Pompeo, right? So classically sort of maybe thinly qualified to be uh, a CIA director. But, uh, you know, Leon Panetta uh, was also a member of Congress, um uh, as was Porter Goss, who went on to be CIA director. And that didn't work out so well, but it wasn't really a function of his inexperience. It was a function of...
1: And he'd been a CIA officer. Right. I mean, he... Um,
2: so, you know, I, I just actually don't see the argument that Trump's appointments, at least not in the national security arena, are uh, suffering from a lack of experience. Oh, and then General Flynn. Look, you can say all kinds of nasty things about General Flynn, and I'd agree with all of them, None of them involves a lack of experience or purported expertise. So I just don't actually understand, at least in our sphere, what Dresner's talking about.
3: Right. So I think to be fair, he's, he's not talking about our sphere. He's talking in general. Um, and, and a little bit, um, you know, it, it's, you're being selective by saying sort of in our sphere. Um, so, you know, uh, Reince Priebus, uh, Steve Bannon, no government, exp- I mean, no government experience. Uh, Priebus has very little government experience. Um, certainly no White House experience. That significant Betsy DeVos, you know, just a philanthropist. Ben Carson, uh, we won't Who even would go say there. He himself, he's not qualified right. to run a federal agency. Well, but
2: but but, hang on a second. We're not a general politics podcast. We're the Rational Security podcast, and so if if you know, if look, I, I will accept that uh, we may have an underwhelming uh, Secretary of uh, of Education for purposes of. Uh, you know, experience. Uh, um, although it's certainly not true of the of, of the uh, Treasury secretary. Um, my my point is, at least as pertains to the subject matter of this thesis of, of this podcast, I'm not sure the Dresner thesis has a lot of uh, empirical. So Legs.
3: I think time will tell, right? So uh, over the last week, yes, we've seen some um, uh, more uh, reassuring, at least in terms of people who understand the system and, and have sort of um, government experience. Uh, that might um, uh, solve some of the lower rank problem, right? So be, because Mattis has been um, selected to be Secretary of Defense, uh, his people, right, um, the people who are his principals and, and his deputies and, um, and his political appointees, he may be able to bring in um, a very qualified. talented, had experienced yeah. cadre uh, there are some other people though that um it's it's highly questionable whether or not they will be able to attract talent uh general flynn is one of them uh, The selection of kt mcfarland someone who this podcast has discussed nobody really knows um as except fox news watch except watchers. for fox news i know her watchers, <laughs> <laughs> and no, i actually know her
1: personally but go ahead <laughs>
3: but, but this is right so um there are features in which um uh the, um some of the particular issues with the principles uh, are going to lead um, not just to the consequences of their particular worldview, but also who is willing to work for them uh, uh, and what the experience and quality of those people look like. Now, it's possible that sort of um, uh, everybody will fall in line and, and come and work for the administration. We'll see a very traditionally staffed uh, uh, White House and sort of national security ranks. But I don't think that we've seen that yet.
2: Right. But Susan, I don't think we're going to look. I think if the if the point is that this is going to be an eccentrically uh, staffed administration and it's going to be staffed with the B team or the B minus team or maybe the C plus team, I certainly agree with that. But I don't think that will be a reflection of the lack of experience of the cabinet officers. I think it will be a reflection of people's. Uh, judgment of their uh, so some of their seriousness, some of their moral fiber, some of their ideology, and it'll be a lot of people's judgment about the uh, less than savory carnival barker quality of the man at the top, Okay, I don't think it's, it's a still, reflection but, of the experience of the people he's appointed
0: so Okay, far. but it still raises the question that that Dresner raises in his column, which is how much does expertise matter if you have the B team or the C team? That w- the premise of our work is that that'll make a difference to policy outcomes.
2: Right, it's just that right now so far I I think, you know, you, what you can't say about General Flynn is that he doesn't have expertise. Okay, and so, so you so,
0: don't, you don't want to engage the question. That's okay. I still, I, but I would agree that th- what we are seeing emerge is setting up a test of that question.
3: The one thing that I do sort of disagree with with Dresden's premise on is that we haven't seen this before, um, right? So, uh, one of the. Uh, uh, you know, not insignificant refrains from the foreign policy community, especially on Syria, is criticism of uh, uh, President Obama's reliance on uh, some of the non expert members of his staff, Ben Rhodes, Tom Donlin, and others, um, on uh, that, that those were the voices that sort of won on Syria policy over uh, John Kerry, Hillary Clinton, other people that had lots and lots of expertise and experience that um, had a quite different vision. Um, and so, and that certainly has been um, an in an indictment of the current administration, albeit on uh, a specific issue, and that's maybe not generalizable to the rest of sort of the parts of the administration. Um, so I think that, uh, uh, this will certainly be true for some part of the Trump administration. Um, I think it almost certainly will be true for some part of our world in the Trump administration. Uh, how big or small of a, of a, of a chunk that might be, uh, remains to be seen. Um, but the idea that we've never seen this before, uh, is, is not necessarily true. Um, I think the difference is is that in the past, um we haven't seen people that we wouldn't say were smart or thoughtful or or capable of understanding things. Um, I think this gets into the sort of the b and c level stuff, right that there's some belief that um uh, Sort of innate ability, talent, um, uh, and intellect can make up for the very, very steep learning curves that that are involved in all of these positions. Uh, that's where you get to sort of the individual characters of the people.
0: Well, there's also, I think, a culture clash at the heart of this question, which is, you know, we have a sense that the people who serve at senior levels in government should be the best and the brightest. And the premise of the Trump campaign and the premise that he seems to be bringing to staffing his administration is that that's not the criterion, that the criterion is your willingness to be bold, to be unorthodox, to disrupt existing norms. And so, you know, the, the things he's valuing and the things that we in the wonk world value are two different categories of things. Um, and so whether those people come with experience or not, it's more a question of orientation or approach than it is knowledge. And, you know, I, I think Dan's right to, to put it forward as a test case. And I do think it presents a challenge for those of us who continue to do this work under a Trump administration in terms of how we think about our engagement with a world, the premise of which is disruption rather than um, reaching out and, and uh, getting advice and building consensus and all that kind of nice stuff that we're used to.
1: Okay. Let's move on to object lessons. <laughs> we promised you a human objectification today. All of our object lessons are people.
0: Because we love people on this podcast. Object
1: lessons are made of people. Uh, I'm going to go first. I want to give a shout out to a friend of mine, uh, Justin Lynch who, uh, is, is or was a journalist working for the AP, uh, in South Sudan, uh, and who was, uh, pretty unceremoniously, uh, booted out, uh, after, uh, uh he had been doing a lot of, uh, pretty aggressive reporting there. I'd report on human rights violations, uh, in that country for the past six months, uh, and was arrested by members of the South Sudan's National Security Service who seized his mobile phones. And Dang. Allowed him to pack a bag. Wow. Uh, as far as I know, he is, he he in fact I do know he's out of the country. He's okay. I've gotten an email from him. But uh, shout out to him and the great work he's doing. And if you are looking for an experienced Africa reporter, find Justin Lynch. He's at on Twitter at just one n Lynch. Uh, and just as a special point of pride, this guy's like Justin's like twenty five and just decided a few years ago he wanted to be a reporter and wanted to do it in Africa. Picked up, went. Became a reporter for the AP in Africa. Wow! Is one, Terrific, talented guy.
3: One thing that's amazing is that as much as we've been looking around for sort of young, talented politicians, and haven't seen them, um, there clearly is a rising rank of just really incredible journalists um, yeah. that are, are coming up. You know, Justin Ben Taub, others that, that really. Um, uh, there's some real hope for the for the future yep. of journalism. Okay, but Find since him, we're objectifying him. people, I gotta ask:
0: Is he cute? He's
1: totally cute. Awesome. Yeah. That's to what boot. we care about. Taboo. To Taboo. To uh, tomorrow, would you like to show your human? Well,
0: <laughs> my human object is an object like no other, and it's Newt Gingrich. Oh, no. awesome! Are um, we sure he's about that? Not about, cute, by the way. Not, <laughs> definitely not cute, but a, but truly an object worthy of study. Um, yesterday was Pearl Harbor Day, and <laughs> Newt Gingrich had some special Gingrichian thoughts to share mm-hmm. on the day on Twitter. Um, you know, there are a lot of ways to to think about Pearl Harbor for most of us. I think it was a day to reflect and remember uh, courage and sacrifice, the onset of World War II. Um, it was a day to, to mark uh, our national narrative. For Newt Gingrich, it was a day to reflect on surprise attacks and what he called professional brilliance and technological power. The widest surprise attack in history. So what he tweeted was "The December 7th is a good day to remember that the world is dangerous and shattering surprises possible even when we have been warned. 75 years ago, the Japanese displayed professional brilliance and technological power, launching surprises from Hawaii to the Philippines. Japanese planning and training let them also carry out surprise attacks in Hong Kong and Malaysia. It was the widest surprise attack in history. And that was all the man had to say
3: nothing on the more than 2000 us service members who were killed nothing about the the world war that was um in
0: the us participation in which was sparked by this mm-hmm. attack mm-hmm. nothing about the perfidy of surprise no attacks. reference
2: to a day that will live in infamy okay, or
1: no. anything like that apparently it won't live in infamy I'm we'll expecting live on 9/11 in, with a tweet mild admiration says, for yeah, i'm expecting a tweet that says al-qaeda pulled off a brilliant surprise attack yeah
0: let's just wait <laughs> highly, innovative. highly innovative highly innovative <laughs> so that's it that's a technocratic kind of history i did not expect to see on Pearl Harbor, Day. and look, like no Cambridge, one can say Newt
3: Gingrich is not an expert, so we can say that expertise doesn't always matter.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Who would like to go next? I-,
3: I will do mine. Um, so my uh, object lesson, um, it's two objects. Um, so one is um the wonderful Asma uh, Halid, uh, who's at uh, uh, Asma NPR- Halid. Halid, sorry, I'm always going to pronounce this wrong. Uh, uh, who's at NPR? Um. Uh, and did a really um, uh, remarkable uh, podcast that I would commend to everybody uh, about her experience about being um, a Muslim reporter on the campaign trail this year. I'm um, really sort of a, a very candid, courageous, uh, you know, brave reflection. Um, I was uh, I happened to be listening to it on the metro this morning. Um, uh, you know, coming from uh, last night, I'd, I'd had dinner with a with a dear friend, um, uh, just an incredibly accomplished, um, uh, special human being. Uh, you know, American. American. American citizen who uh, happens to be Muslim and um, encountered a pretty uh, startling, uh, you know, sort of uh, hate incident uh, against her. And um, uh, so I've already sort of been thinking about um, the ways in which some of those sentiments have been infecting our own city and our own lives in ways that um, I certainly had never imagined uh, would be possible. Um, Muslim uh,
0: objectification. Boo. Boo. Um, uh,
3: But uh, the good kind of Muslim objectification, um, which is... This wonderful um, uh, sort of meditation um, uh, she really had very clear-eyed thoughts to share um, uh, and I was certainly uh, grateful to, uh, for to her for sharing that and sort of um, uh, would really um, suggest that, that sort of people who are interested in, in national security and foreign policy in general um, you know also uh, uh, not lose the thread on, on what's happening here at home um, the ways in which we talk about these things um, uh, really have remarkable uh, impacts for you know for our fellow citizens, our friends, um, uh, and that uh, we spend the next four years um, uh, being thoughtful, grounded, sort of um, uh, responsible allies on these issues. Um, So listen to the podcast and um, do something nice for somebody today because it is an ugly world out there sometimes.
2: So, uh, my human object, a few months ago, uh, one Shane Harris, uh, persuaded me to join the Cosmos Club. And I was, uh, standing in the lobby the other day with, uh, one Quinta Jurassic, our, our, our awesome audio engineer. And as she is my witness, a, uh, random seeming woman walked up to me and said, are you Benjamin Wittes? And I said, uh, yeah. And she said, you don't know me, uh, but I recognize your voice, uh, from rational security. Awesome. Uh, I love, so cool. I love your podcasts. And, uh, I asked her who she was and she, uh, said she was a lawyer in New York and, uh, uh, ran off with her, uh, uh travel bag to what I take it to be the room she was staying in at the Cosmos Club. Uh, so to Quinta and my, uh, uh, interlocutor in the Cosmos Club, uh, congratulations! You are now an object lesson on rational security.
3: <laughs> we objectify the our fans. Statusist. The only
2: way that sir <laughs> would have been better if it ended is if she came back and went, "Oh,
1: and you've been served." <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, no, there was
2: no service of process.
1: <laughs> you, been
0: with us? Here you go. Was, <laughs> I'm so excited that we have fans that we can objectify. I know. Thank And that, you, and guys. that know us by our voices. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. Which
2: is which is awesome. Our because I never thought of my voice is particularly distinctive. Oh or, really?
1: Really? Oh, I've always thought But felt now
0: that you're line. feeling really self conscious Well, now right
2: I, yeah, I'm thinking who's listening and when are that, when when are they going to run into me on the street and Can
0: I be more sonorous? Be like exactly. it's you. I know you anywhere. Well,
1: that brings us to the end of the podcast. I hope you all feel objectified. I feel great. I feel like I've been made and remade. You look great,
0: too. Thanks. That's good.
1: Uh, Rational Security is, of course, a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive at com. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. Remember, when you download the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcatcher, please leave a five-star rating or, you know, a decent rating. Five stars is You'll leave a a five-star rating.
2: Yeah,
3: yeah. yeah.
1: Definitely. Okay. So definitely.
2: If you you have a problem with us, send us an email. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't leave a comment. If you're
1: listening, leave a comment rating. Yeah. (laughs) It actually really does help uh, make it so other people can find the podcast, which is a a great thing for all. And then we can objectify even more. Uh, Our audio engineer, as you know, is going to Jurassic. The show is edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by the president all up in Taiwan.
3: Ooh, Ooh. Nice. I like it. Snappy. Overall,
1: <laughs> now our music is performed as always by Sophia Yan, um, who
2: is, in some distant original sense, yeah, a Taiwanese American. This is true. Although under the One China policy, she would have. She's to She's an be. American
3: He's, in Taiwan. She she's all up in Taiwan. Yeah, although yeah. I think she's of Taiwan. An American she's an Englishman of in New York.
2: Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. no, <laughs> <laughs> she's she's actually. Speaks Taiwanese she dialect. Does. She um, actually
1: told me taught me how to make Taiwanese street food one time. Yeah, she's mm. uh, so That's she
2: really has some Taiwanese stuff going yeah, on. She does on there, in there, yeah, around there,
1: under uh, there. Yeah, stay out of there or be safe wherever you are, Sophia. Thank you for your lovely music um, on behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman Wittus, Ben wittis and Susan Hennessy. I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week.